When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I've had people ask me, like, are we going to want to go back to sporting events after all this? And my guess is, my sense is that once we do get the all clear from Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the only person I trust <laughs> at that level, that that we can go to stadiums, uh, I think people are going to be really excited and happy to to do something that's part of their their lives, you know, and always has been. And they're probably going to miss it. You know, they're going to miss it even more. I know I do right now. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to the preeminent soccer journalist in the world, Grant Wall. I'm going to speak to him about soccer in the age of coronavirus. Also, I've got some choice words about a bribery scandal that's rocking the International Olympic Committee. I got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards, but first, let's talk to Grant Wall. So uh, before um, I ask you anything, Grant, um, your your wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, um, she's been on the front lines of fighting the coronavirus. How is she doing and how is your family? Thanks for asking. Uh, she's doing OK. Um, she is an infectious disease doctor. Uh, she's done a lot of work in sub-Saharan Africa over the years with TB and malaria uh, she went to Guinea for two months during the Ebola crisis. Um, so she's she's been through some pretty intense stuff um, you know, in, in the area of infectious disease. And what really sticks out to me is, um, you know, she's part time at Bellevue Hospital here in New York. And her her protective gear, her PPE is worse here in New York and more lacking here in New York than it was in Guinea during Ebola. Wow. And, and so that part has been pretty stunning. And that's why so many hospital workers, doctors, healthcare workers in New York are, and elsewhere are, are freaked out because it's, it's pretty shocking that, uh, that this country wouldn't be prepared uh, in such a massive way for this, and there's and they're doing the best that they can at great personal risk. So my wife's doing okay. Uh, she's also a CNN medical analyst. She has her own podcast, Epidemic. So she's really busy right now. And so what I'm trying to do as much as I can, I'm doing my job at Sports Illustrated. But more importantly, I think for me is just making sure she's fed and supported and gets enough sleep, and that you know we all try and work together to get through this. Wow. When, when, when you guys are talking, um, what, what are, I mean, does she generally feel like deeply pessimistic about where things are right now being on those front lines or does, does she see glimmers of hope right now? I and mean, what, what does she say to you? You know, it's tough. Um, she, um, 
she doesn't want to seem pessimistic, but she wants to be honest. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, she's really uh, just crushed by how poorly the U.S. has responded to this. And that's no joke, man. I mean, like, there's no, there are going to be, and this is her talking, not me, but like, I, there are going to be tens of thousands and hopefully not hundreds of thousands preventable deaths in the U.S., you know, from this. And and that's that's terrible, you know. That's like, I, I don't even have the words for that. So, um, you know, like when it comes to hope, you know, right now for, for her, if she's asked that question, she'll talk about her her colleagues, her healthcare workers, the people she went to medical school and residency with, and they're in touch all the time. And, and you know, when she goes on her Facebook, all she's seeing are, pictures that people are posting from, you know, going into work and, and dealing with all of it or, or finally getting a chance to see their kids. And, um, and so there's a lot of fear out there. And it's not just, you know, fear in the U.S. of people getting the coronavirus, but, you know, the people who are treating it. Wow. So let's talk some soccer. Okay. Uh, <laughs> although we're still going to be in the same, uh, in the same arena. Um, First, I just want your general assessment. How, how do you think soccer globally handled the shutdown of the sport? Um, not terribly, but I do think they waited too long, especially for the big European Champions League games, uh, to shut those down. You know, if you hear Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, he's already said this publicly, they played a game in a full stadium at Anfield on a Wednesday against Atletico Madrid and that game should not have been played. Uh, that game should definitely have not been played in a full stadium. And Klopp even used the term criminal to describe the decision to play that game. And that has nothing to do with the fact that Liverpool went out in Champions League. It has everything to do with the fact that that was very indicative of the response, especially in the UK at that time. Because there were Champions League games that week that were played in empty stadiums. I don't think they actually canceled any that week. They, they did for good, basically, the week after. Um, you know, in, in the big picture, we've seen Euro 2020, the big summer tournament, moved to next summer. Um, you know, that's uh, similar to the Copa America, the big South American tournament was supposed to be this summer. That's going to be in 2021. Um, and so... In terms of, uh, there was one game, there was one Champions League game, uh, you may have read this story, in uh, Milan between Atalanta and Valencia. And that game has actually been cited by healthcare workers. The decision to play that game in a full stadium in Milan is having had a huge influence on Bergamo, where Atalanta is located about an hour hour and a half outside of Milan, as that that city becoming one of the worst hit coronavirus cities in Italy. And so stadium situations, venues with people in them, that stuff really has been a huge vector for the virus. Wow. Now, I, I, are, what, what are some stories that you've 
honed in on of um, people in the soccer world stepping up. I mean, you mentioned Jurgen Klopp and his comments. Um, we know of uh, Lionel Messi and the entire pipeline of Barcelona taking these 70% pay cuts. But are there any other stories of note to emerge from the soccer world that, I mean, can give folks a sense of hope or resistance in terms of what's happening right now? Well, I, I like what Megan Rapinoe has been doing. She's been doing uh, Instagram video, you know, live Instagram with uh, AOC um, and some other leaders and and being engaged. Um, you mentioned Lionel Messi and all the Barcelona players giving up 70% of their salaries. It's interesting to see in England, we aren't really seeing that yet. Um, I My personal feeling is I think it's great when professional athletes who are millionaires uh, give a lot of money uh, and support uh, part-time stadium and, and arena workers like we've seen a lot in the NBA. But overall, I'm actually, I think the billionaire owners are the ones who should be doing more. And I, I hope that the actions of these millionaire athletes puts more pressure on more billionaire owners to do the right thing. I still don't think we've seen nearly enough of that. You know, and, and I I know in the soccer world, I look at an MLS team like Minnesota United and, and they not only aren't paying their part-time workers. They, you know, sent them a, a mass email saying, here's where you can get a job at Target, you know, like just not doing what they should be doing. Um, you know, like I'm trying to think of, I, I wish kind of there were, there were more stories of athletes in the soccer world, um, you know, doing things that, that really stood out. I mean, they, there have been, you know, a lot of, messages of support but i i wouldn't mind seeing more athletes do what what messi did and and you know cristiano ronaldo's not giving up as much of his salary but the Juventus players are uh, as a whole giving up uh, at least i think it's two or three months salary so you know we'll see if that catches on more i just find it interesting that country by country we're seeing different actions like in spain and italy we're seeing more of the salary being given up by soccer players than we are in England or, or in the U S for example. Exactly. So um, when I, when I told some folks uh, we were going to talk, uh, one of the big questions that came at me was wanting to ask you how you think coronavirus and the shutdown is going to affect the growth of women's soccer, uh, either generally on the international stage or, uh, the NWSL specifically. Um, what 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 do you think the the ripple effect is going to be? Well, I'm really concerned about Europe because Europe at the club level is where we've seen a lot of the major growth in women's soccer over the last few years. It's also partly why a lot of the European national teams have gotten better and better, as we saw at the Women's World Cup last year. Uh, and even though even at the bigger clubs. I fear that women's soccer might be something they see as expendable if they're trying to save money. And I really hope that's not the case because you've only just now started to see Man United and Real Madrid after taking way too long establishing women's teams. I wonder if that will move forward. I wonder if the growth we've seen in England in terms of spending on their women's teams, whether it's Arsenal or Chelsea or Man City, will they continue to do that? Will they keep their teams? We saw Liverpool actually sort of 
basically cut their women's team a couple years ago. Um, like that, that's a, in a, in a place that I'm, I'm very concerned about. Um, you know, like they still aren't in a, in a place in Europe where women's soccer is accepted or more accepted as it is here in the United States. Now here in the U S with the NWSL, it's a slightly different problem. It's that not all of their owners are very wealthy mm -hmm. in terms of sports owner wealthy. Right. I mean, like the MLS owners are basically all billionaires. The NWSL owners are not. And so even though this league is the the most established women's pro league for soccer that we've ever seen in the United States, even though it's got support from the U.S. Soccer Federation, there's a reason that it needs that financial support from the U.S. Soccer Federation. And so I think there's going to be you know, some challenges there. We, in one example, we recently saw the, the team in the Seattle area, Rain FC, was bought by uh, by Lyon, the the best women's team in Europe, and also, you know, a, a big club on the men's side too. And now it's called OL Rain, and I think we're going to be very glad that that purchase took place because. I don't think that the previous full owners of Rain FC might have been able to withstand something like this. Mm. And does coronavirus does it do anything to the state of struggle of the U.S. women's national team? Does it is there any intersection there that people who've been supporting the U.S. WNT should be aware of? Well, it's just kind of a quirk of coincidental timing that right as we were all going into lockdown there was this meltdown at the U.S. Soccer Federation over their legal strategy connected to the gender discrimination case that's been brought by the U.S. women's players. And so very long story short, they've had this ongoing case and these legal filings came out where we saw publicly this strategy that the U.S. Soccer Federation was taking was actually to say that women inherently had less skill, ability, and responsibility than men, than the U.S. men's players, and therefore they should be paid less. And this caused a huge uproar, as you might have guessed, and you suddenly had sponsors of the U.S. Soccer Federation, like Coca-Cola, like Volkswagen, like Deloitte, issuing these very strongly worded public statements saying that this was offensive, they wanted to talk to U.S. soccer immediately. And right around that time, I wrote a column saying Carlos Cordero, the U.S. soccer president, needed to resign over this. And the next day he did. And so the U.S. team, U.S. women's team, was actually together for the She Believes Cup playing a game down in Texas and they had a protest where they wore their training tops inside out so that you couldn't see the Federation badge, which mm -hmm. was just a genius protest in which they then sold T-shirts of this that they had a license to and made a, a, a lot of money that they're going to contribute to stadium workers from games that they've had canceled. And um, and so Cindy Parlo Cohn is now the new soccer U.S. soccer president. She won World Cups and Olympic titles as a player. And in her first 
public comments, along with a new CEO, Will Wilson for U.S. Soccer, both of them said they want to get this settled quickly, this case, before it goes to court. Now, it's set to go to court on May 5th. We're not going to get there. there what's going to happen is there's going to be a settlement. U.S. Soccer is going to write a big check to the U.S. women's players, and U.S. Soccer needs to move on from this because they should have settled this a long time ago. Mm. Now, what's your reaction when you hear people proposing different ways to resume the MLS season? Like the idea of it going in phases, playing in empty stadiums, fan spacing. I mean, these debates are happening across sports, of course. But what's the state of the debate in in MLS and what, what do you think needs to be done? Well, one thing that's different about MLS than most sports leagues is that the majority of its income and revenue comes from gate receipts, stadium attendance, and not television contracts. And so I think that is going to shape a little bit how MLS responds. I think they want to play their full season, which is 34 games, and they had only played two match days before everything got shut down. Um, I think they MLS will try and wait as long as possible until they can play in, in full stadiums because that's a huge revenue source. And I think you're going to see just a ton of midweek games <laughs> as they try and get that season in. And they're also going to extend the season. They've already said this. Usually the playoffs end or they're supposed to end in November. They are going to extend into December at least. Uh, to finish the season. So we just don't know when they can start playing again, right? And and so I think because MLS is reliant on, on gate receipts and attendance, you're not going to see MLS go and play a bunch of games in Las Vegas in, a, in an empty stadium just to get stuff on TV because TV is not as important to MLS. That's a great point. And I, I, really, I wanted to ask you this, too. This is a, a bit more uh, philosophical here. But has has going through this experience, both, you know, in terms of seeing what, what your wife's doing on a daily basis and uh, just everything that's happened, has it changed in any way the value by which you see soccer uh, now that it's especially now that it's been removed from our lives? That question, by the way, comes from Dan Bloom. Thank you so much, Dan. Hey. Sent that to me. He really wanted. He's he's a huge soccer fan. Wrestling yeah. questions, and he wanted to know what your thoughts were. You know, I I'd like to think that I've always put soccer in perspective in where it fits in larger society. You know, um, I can remember my first interaction with you was probably back way back in the 2004 Olympics when. Uh, the Iraqi team was doing really well in the Olympic soccer tournament. And I had interviewed some of the Iraqi players about George W. Bush using their success in his campaign speeches that summer uh, that, you know, the, the Iraqi uh, invasion was worth it. Things were going well, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and all the players said, we don't want them to be doing that. If we weren't playing soccer, we'd be with our brothers in Fallujah right now. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and I reported that and like, it certainly was a, a more important story taking place in a, in a soccer realm. 
And so I think I've always sort of looked at soccer as being part of a, a much bigger thing. And one of the reasons I love covering soccer is because it is so global. There is so much volume. There's so many good stories that are connected to society and politics. And it's just, it's, it's part of the, the global fabric of society, right? So um, when it comes back, I'm not going to be ashamed to, to be, to have a lot of joy at doing something simple like watching a, a soccer game or covering a soccer game while still realizing where it is in the importance of things. But, you know, I've had people ask me, like, are we going to want to go back to sporting events after all this? And my guess is, my sense is that once we do get the all clear from Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the only person I trust <laughs> at that level, that that we can go to stadiums, uh, I think people are going to be really excited and happy to to do something that's part of their their lives, you know, and always has been. And they're probably going to miss it. You know, they're going to miss it even more. I know I do right now. So um, I think I think people should look forward to it coming back whenever it does come back. I hope it doesn't come back too soon because I think that would be really unfortunate. But when it's when the time is right, I think it's going to be a great thing. No, that's real talk right there. And, you know, I, I normally ask folks on this podcast, I always end by asking them what music they're listening to these days. But given how uh, shut in we are, um, sorry to ask you this off the top of the noggin, but do you have a, a sports book or a sports movie that you recommend to folks who are maybe going nuts indoors? What something something to pass the time a little bit? What what's the Grant Wall recommendation? Oh man, um, you can say your own books if you want to. That, that <laughs> um, well, I would say like go back and read the Beckham Experiment. It's been ten years since it came out. Actually, eleven now. Uh, on, on David Beckham's first two years in, in L.A. because uh, I'm pretty proud of that book. Um, but, um, you know, here's the, the tough thing, and I'll be, I'll be totally honest with you right now. Like, um, I wish I was reading more books. As, as a human being, the only time I, I tend to read books these days is on vacations because, like, the work demands have gotten so, so crazy. Um, but... Uh, Huh. Um, Has social media taken a little bit of the uh, the drive to read? I do hear that from lots of folks. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's certainly part of it. Um, but, you know, like the one exception, I guess, for me is soccer books because I, I want to read my friend's book. So I, I'm going to recommend The National Team by Caitlin Murray. Okay. And uh, it's a book about the history of the U.S. women's national team, and it's terrific. Um, and it really does give you a sense of how rudimentary things were when they got started in the mid to late 80s and even going into the 90s. and gives you a really good understanding of how, of all of the context historically behind the pay struggles between the U.S. women's national team and the U.S. Soccer Federation and how terribly they've been treated over the years and how that has continued and has shaped the situation that they're in now. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Hey, 
Grant, while I know you're busy right now, um, please give us all solidarity. Uh, please send all solidarity and respect to, to Dr. Gounder. I will. And thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Good talking to you. Great to talk to you. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words about what's going on with the IOC. Okay, look, several lifetimes ago, in 2013, when the Tokyo Bid Committee presented its case to the International Olympic Committee to host the 2020 Summer Games, it positioned itself as, quote, a safe pair of hands, in contrast to the more protest or scandal-wracked regions of the world. This pitch resonated with the person who ran the IOC at the time, a Belgian count named Jacques Roche, Recent disclosures, however, reveal that Tokyo Olympic officials were not so much a safe pair of hands as an extraordinarily corrupt pair of claws that, according to new allegations by French prosecutors, were busy buying IOC votes. The last few weeks have brought a dizzying spate of events around what are now the 2021 Tokyo Summer Olympics. Although, as if channeling their inner Orwell, Olympic bigwigs insist that the Games will still be called Tokyo 2020. The IOC went from professing that its executive board would never utter the words postponement or cancellation because of the coronavirus to admitting that postponement was in fact on the table to officially postponing the games after a remarkable upsurge of athletes demanded that the games be delayed. Now we have the thorny issue of a gentleman by the name of Haruyuki Takahashi. According to Reuters, Takahashi became a high-flying bagman armed with $8.2 million from the Tokyo Bid Committee to help secure IOC votes. The former executive at the powerful Japanese advertising agency Dentsu has denied wrongdoing, although he admitted that he lobbied voting IOC members like Lamine Diak, the former head of the international governing body for track and field, who has been under house arrest in France since 2015 on corruption charges and accusations that he concealed failed drug tests and blackmailed athletes wonderful people. Takahashi has only conceded that he provided humble presents to Diak like cameras and a Seiko watch. Takahashi maintains that providing fancy gifts to people like Diak and other members of the IOC was just business as usual. You don't go empty-handed, he told Reuters. That's common sense. Now, French prosecutors have long been investigating whether such common sense actually crossed the line into illegality as investigators in France have considered whether people involved with Tokyo 2020 were involved in a payola scam to secure the Olympic Games. The Tokyo bid certainly looks suspicious. Takihashi was brought on to the Tokyo bid team as a consultant by a gentleman by the name of Tsunisukazu Takeda, who headed the Tokyo 2020 bid and who's also the son of Prince Suniyoshi Takeda, 
an IOC member from 1967 to 1981, and the great-grandson of the Emperor uh, Meiji, ruler of Japan from 1867 to 1912. Takeda was indicted in January 2019 on corruption charges linked to $2 million in payments that he allegedly authorized for a Singapore-based company called Black Tidings. While he has maintained that these payments were for consulting work, French authorities believe that they were bribed shunted to Papa Masata Diak, who is the son of the aforementioned Lamine Diak, the focus of Takahashi's courting. Oh, it's quite the web. Prosecutors allege that the payments channeled through the Black Tidings account were meant for the elder Diak. In mid-2019, Takeda resigned his post at the Japanese Olympic Committee. He assists he's innocent. The legal machinations continue. Meanwhile, the IOC is positioning itself as a victim, unbelievably as a parti civile to the proceedings. It might even pursue compensation for damages. Seriously. Takahashi insists that he need not reveal what he did with the $8.2 million he received from the Tokyo Bid Committee, telling Reuters, One day before I die, I will tell you. It should be noted that Japan is no stranger to Olympics-related corruption allegations. When Nagano was bidding for the 1998 Winter Games, its team flooded voting IOC members with gifts, spending 22 grand per member in the quest for 62 IOC votes. We might know even more details if the Nagano bid committee had not incinerated all its records after the Olympics, likely destroying evidence of additional trickery. Of course, Japan is not alone when it comes to Olympic bribery. The Salt Lake City Olympic bid scandal of 2002 set the bar plenty high, doling out nearly $3 million in bribes and other inducements such as shopping sprees, tickets to NBA basketball games, and even a knee replacement for an IOC member's mother-in-law. Reuters unspooled new details that Olympic mavens have long craved, but it doesn't take a monomaniacal Olympics watcher to see that the IOC is overseeing a thoroughly corrupt process. Wall-to-wall media coverage contemplating the possibility of Tokyo 2020's postponement or cancellation has redirected attention away from the flabbergasting bribery allegations that paved a path for Tokyo's safe pair of hands to grab the games in the first place. The IOC is already running on reputational fumes at this point. It's a wheezing behemoth that continues to make the case for its own abolition. Let those games begin. And those choice words were co-written with me by Jules Boykoff, tremendous Olympics writer. Uh, you should check out all his books on the Olympics. Thank you so much, Jules, for working with me on this. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back. Now it's time for the part of the show I call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! 
I mean, I, I think it goes to the players on Barcelona uh, at all levels, including the great Lionel Messi for taking the aforementioned 70% pay cut uh, to actually help all the Barca employees. That's just a remarkable gesture. Um, normally on this show, we've been uh, critical of the idea that athletes should use their salaries to make this up. Uh, the crisis from coronavirus, but just the act of solidarity of taking that kind of pay cut is just very impressive, and it, it just really hits home. Uh, the Just Sit Down Award Sit your ass down. goes against the people criticizing Jamel Hill. Now, let me explain this. Uh, you might have seen in the news that Bob Kraft, uh, owner of the New England Patriots and friend of Donald Trump, uh, he is using his plane to transport um, basic medical equipment like masks from China to the United States. And he received all this incredible praise, like, oh, what a wonderful billionaire. And Jamel Hill said, well, you know, it's his boy Trump that's put us in this position in the first place. And like most things Jamel Hill said, that just um, uncorked a wave of racist invective. And so people who need to just sit the hell down are the people criticizing Jamel Hill because she's absolutely right. Like, great. Bob Kraft is sending a plane to get medical equipment. Well, guess what? One of the reasons we're in this situation is that Bob Kraft trusts his plutocratic uh, ill-gotten wares to uh, putting this reality show contestant, this orange smear of neediness in the White House. And those things should not be forgotten. Don't allow a plane full of masks to act as uh, any sort of good deed washing over what Bob Kraft hath wrought. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Grant Wall for appearing with us. Thank you for everybody out there listening. Uh, remember, you can support the show even in these difficult times, not by giving us money, because I know money needs to go other places right now, but by just going... Uh, to iTunes, to Stitcher, to your podcast app of choice, leaving us a rating, uh, writing us a little review. All of those things make a huge difference in terms of algorithms that I can't possibly understand. So for everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.